Joshua chapter 12, the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 24. The military strength of the Canaanite states, both north and south, had been broken in a long series of battles. Chapter 12 contains a summary of the many defeats that Israel had inflicted upon their enemies. This chapter completes the second major section of the book of Joshua, that section that began at chapter 5, verse 13, and whose key word was the Hebrew verb to take. Section 2 related Israel's taking of the promised land. The next section will describe how the land was divided or allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. The valley of the Arnon descends steeply to the sea, the Dead Sea about halfway down its eastern shore. Mount Hermon lay 130 miles uh, to the north. So the point is that the Transjordan from north to south now lay safely in Israel's hands. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinnerot, eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshimot, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea, southward, to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. That's all about King Sihon, um, uh, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selakah and all of Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. The account of Israel's conquests begin with the defeat, or begins with the defeat of the two kingdoms east of the Jordan, where two and a half of Israel's tribes had been permitted to settle. Given that this land was to be as well part of Israel, it was important to include Sihon and Og among the defeated kings. The account of their defeat, however, is not found in the book of Joshua but in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Moses had led the people through those two campaigns. Under Joshua, they had taken the rest of the land. At this point, the war being largely over, it was important to remind everyone that Israel was a single kingdom and that those who lived east of the Jordan were as much a part of it as those who lived uh, in the promised land per se. Transjordan, Transjordan and Cisjordan, this side, Jordan, this side, uh, were equally Israel. The geographical description we just read is almost precisely the same as what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and chapter 3. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, the point of all of this geographical detail, much more of which is still to come in the book of Joshua, is to serve 
as a demonstration that the Lord had been scrupulously faithful to his promise, right down to every last village in town, every last border, passing atop this hill over here and descending through that valley uh, over there. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. Now, the defeated kings are not going to be listed by name as some of them were previously. Big men in their time, no doubt. But for Israel... It is the conquest of the land. It's the taking possession of the land, not the defeat of an individual enemy that mattered in the long run. And comparing verse 7 with verse 6, emphasis falls on Joshua as the second Moses. What Moses had done for Israel east of the Jordan, Joshua has now done for Israel to its west. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness and in the Negev, The land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Canaan was populated by an array of different peoples. But here and in the rest of Joshua, the emphasis is going to fall on the unity of Israel. Many peoples are replaced by one people. The eventual story of the world. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmut, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of Geter, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. These, the last four southern kings listed, Geter, Hormat, Arad, and Adullam, were not mentioned in the account of the southern campaign in chapter 10. The king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lasharon won, the king of Madan won, the king of Hatsor won, the king of Shimron Maron won, the king of Akshaf won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won. This is the first mention of Megiddo in the Bible, a very important city. Uh, guarding, as it did, an important pass through which a major highway passed. This is the same Megiddo that will give its name eventually to Armageddon, the place of the figurative last battle in the book of Revelation. The king of Kadesh won. The king of Jachneam in Carmel won. The king of Dor in Naphath Dor won. The king of Goim in Galilee won. The king of Terza won in all 31 kings. Of the northern kings that have been defeated, uh, there are seven who were not mentioned in the account of the battle against the northern coalition of Canaanite cities in chapter 11. Indeed, of the 31 cities mentioned here by name as having been conquered, only 16 were previously mentioned in the account of the conquest. As in chapter 11, verse 18, where we read that There was a battle, a war for a long time. So in this way, too, we are reminded that there were more battles than those of which we have been given a record. Perhaps more battles than even those that are mentioned here in the concluding summary. Many of these cities, as you remember, would figure 
in the continuing history of Israel. Tirzah, for example, the last one, will serve as the first capital of the northern kingdom after Israel was divided following the death of King Solomon. In any case, making a list of conquered kings and kingdoms was typical practice among the monarchs of the ancient Near East. Archaeologists have found similar lists in Egypt, in Assyria, and so on. What's interesting about those lists, however, is that the king himself is listed as the conqueror. I captured and I destroyed such and such a king or such and such a city, Pharaoh Tutmose III would say in the inscription found in the temple of Aton at Karnak. Here, it's Joshua and the people of Israel who won these many victories. And, as has been made clear in the book to this point, only because the Lord has given each of these enemies into Israel's hand. There's none of the typical arrogance of the boasting in this list that you find in the others. Our Father in heaven, we have before us one of those chapters that we skim through as quickly as we can when we're reading the Bible through in a year, wondering if there's anything at all valuable for us today in an archive such as this. Help us to see what value there is. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've come to the first of several chapters in Joshua concerning which faithful readers of the Bible have long scratched their heads wondering what that chapter is doing in the Bible and what it can possibly teach us of any importance for our Christian life today. Lists of these kinds strike us as tedious, far removed from that biblical text that will teach us how to live as Christians at work or in our various relationships, how to worship God, how to bear effective witness to the unsaved and so on. But we pass by too quickly. I can assure you of this. What is reported here was not tedium either to the Canaanites or to the Israelites. Far from it. Employ your imagination. Think of how this summary would have sounded to the original inhabitants of Canaan of whom we read here. They would have thought, as one of their cities after another was named, and so ended our former life. So ended the Canaanite states that had ruled Palestine for centuries. In a matter of months, in a few years at the most, they had fallen one by one to the invading Israelites, and nothing was left. They'd won one small engagement early on. The rest, however, was the record of one military catastrophe after another. Lest we forget, their defeat and the destruction of their kingdoms was divine judgment upon them as a wicked people. Theirs was a cruel society oppressive to the poor, sexually licentious, idolatrous, violently competitive. The Lord had given them a very long time to repent. Israel had had to wait for four and a half centuries to receive her inheritance because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But finally, Yahweh's patience was exhausted. The perspective of Joshua 
As a book, of course, focuses our attention on Israel's gaining possession of the promised land, but her gain was the Canaanites' loss. This, too, is the reality of things. Salvation and judgment, heaven and hell, lie very close to one another in the outworking of human life. So take one last look at the Canaanites as they disappear from history and see in them the future of the unbelieving world with all of its great men and all of its impressive cities. Did those who remain in the land even realize how different was the life of the people who had conquered them? Did they realize how utterly different Yahweh was from the gods of Canaan? Whether they did or not, their sun had set, and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites left the world stage to be remembered for nothing but the role they played in the history of Israel. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So seemingly great at the time, so soon and so long forgotten. People today may object that God's people took the land from others who had inhabited it first, but God took that land from them as punishment for their sins, and the same is going to happen eventually to all those who live as the Canaanites did, who refuse to repent, who refuse to believe in and follow the King of Kings. Like it or not, this will happen sooner or later, always has. Always will. The kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's going to mean the conquest of those peoples that stand in the way, that will not submit, will not follow the Lord. We must never forget this. We must never be sentimental about the world we live in. Still less should we ever be beguiled by it or intimidated by it or overly impressed by it. It is given over to death. Whether sooner or later, everything this world does, everything it gives itself to in worship, everything it accomplishes is going to be destroyed. And every citizen of this world is going to face the exacting judgment of the Lord. That's the first message of Joshua chapter 12. Our calling is not to make this world a happier place. We may do that by happenstance. But it is not our calling. Nor is our calling to make people more comfortable 
in this world. Our calling is to call men and women, boys and girls, out of this world before they are destroyed with it and before it is too late. This is the Bible's perspective from beginning to end. And when we embrace that perspective and take it seriously for ourselves, it changes us. It must. It solemnizes us and galvanizes us. If this world is hurtling toward doom, then obviously, as John put it, if anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. But the primary focus of the chapter is not on the defeated Canaanites. They aren't even named except for Sihon and Og, but rather on Israel's gaining of the land. The way the chapter is written lays stress on the totality of Israel's victory. All of these kings from the far south to the far north, one after another, the list of them makes a cumulative impression. The number one that follows the name of each town from verse 9 to verse 24 may seem tedious to us perhaps, but the verses read as if the audience was counting the cities one by one as they heard their names read off. Remember, as soon as Joshua was written, and for many centuries thereafter, God's people heard the Bible. They did not read it. They didn't have a copy of the Bible on their bedside table or the coffee table in their living room. They heard it read at the synagogue, at the temple, on the Sabbath, on the feast days. And they would have heard this list of Canaanite cities. What is more, they knew where all these cities were. In their mind's eye, as the list was read, they would have moved up and down the geography of the promised land. The names, one after another, would have made a powerful impression on them. One part of the promised land, then another, still another, had fallen to Israel. Now we understand how it is that we are living in these very same places, that they are ours. Suppose, for example, we are to put ourselves, or we're to put ourselves in their place. Suppose I read to you an account of a great victory of the kingdom of God, a victory that is going to come. A victory in which the population of our largest and most impressive and fabled American cities had fallen powerfully under the sway of the gospel, one city after another after another. And each city, by that means, becoming under the Holy Spirit's powerful working a community joyfully subject to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. Suppose you heard this. It began in Boston, where the story of America's Christian experience began. Then New York City fell to the Spirit of God. And then Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Charlotte, Atlanta, from there, the Spirit moved to Nashville, up to Indianapolis, Chicago, Minneapolis, down to St. Louis, west to Kansas City, south to Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, northwest to Denver. Every Christian with a modicum of knowledge of American geography, and I realize that isn't every Christian anymore, <laughs> would be visualizing the map, noting the movement from north to south, 
northeast, eventually to southwest. When I listed that list of cities in the first, in the first service this morning, someone came up to me afterward and asked why I had left Florida out. <laughs> they were following me down the eastern seaboard, and I stopped at Atlanta. I'm not going to tell you why I left Florida. <laughs> but as you listen to that list, you would be waiting for the next city. You would be waiting for that city that is familiar to you because you lived there or you studied there or you have relatives there. The excitement would build as each new section of the country had fallen to under the sway of the kingdom of God. Well, it was something like that for an Israelite who heard the king of Jericho won, the king of Ai won, Bethel won, Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, and so on. This would have been for them no dull archive, but a thrilling summary of Israel's total triumph. But it would also have been the impressive demonstration that the Lord had been faithful to the promise that he had made to Abraham so long before and had repeated again and again to Abraham's descendants, unto you and your seed I will give this land. Now, as we have throughout our study of Joshua to this point, we must now apply this history to our own lives. We're taught to do that in the Bible, in which again and again the history of the conquest is treated as providing an illustration or a pattern of the way of salvation. As the great church father Origen said in his sermons on Joshua, Joshua was well aware of the anagogical sense of his achievements. Anagogical, literally leading upward, refers to the way in which this history points to heaven and to the consummation of the kingdom of God in heaven. Every Christian is Israel taking the promised land. Every Christian life repeats the history of the conquest. The promised land is a type. It's an embodied prophecy of heaven. And heaven has to be taken by faithful men who trust the Lord and fight his battles. As with Israel, so with us, the promised land will not drop suddenly into our lap. It takes time. We too have to wait for it. Fight many battles before the land will be safely ours. But we learn in Joshua that Israel took Canaan and that we're going to take heaven in due course. God will enable us to do that and he will fulfill in our lives the promise he has made. That is the supreme lesson of the book of Joshua. The question Joshua chapter 12 poses to us is this. Do we think of our lives in these terms? Do we see the progress that is being made day by day, month by month, year by year, toward our final possession of the promised land? Can you identify, as it were, the Hebrons, the Eglons, the Debers, the Adullams of your life? Do you see the Lord taking you step by step through the Arabah and the hill country and the coastal plain? Safely through battle after battle, can you see in your mind's eye the approaching end when the promised land will be yours? Life can seem so ordinary 
so much of the time, can't it? Nothing terribly significant seems to be happening. We're wrapped up in the details of our lives, important as no doubt they are. The days pass, the weeks, the months, the years, but we're not conscious or we're hardly conscious of the fact that we are day by day taking the promised land. That we are drawing closer and closer to the day when it will be completely ours. We fail to see that this thing that happened, this thing the Lord did for us, this person He brought into our lives, this encounter we had with Him or with her, This way we were able to serve Him. That piece of obedience, that act of repentance, that sacrifice of Christian love, those words of witness were, as it were, the taking of Deborah or Adullam. Just as the unbelieving world is unaware that their kingdom is being taken from them and that they are inexorably moving ever closer to final and complete defeat, so we can be too often unaware that our lives, that every Christian life, is the reproduction of Israel's conquest of Canaan. Where lies our failure? How does this happen? What is missing? Well, one thing that is missing, one thing that keeps us from a living sense of what we are doing and where we are going, is the lack of such a list as we find here in Joshua 12. What we far too often lack, you and I, is a detailed itemization of the Lord's goodness to us, of the victories that have already been won, of the cities that have already been taken, and of the extent to which the promised land lies already under our feet. You remember, perhaps, those of you who are older, the song we used to sing in Sunday school was written by Johnson Oatman, Jr., a Methodist minister who wrote some other popular gospel songs of the late 19th and early 20th century, including Higher Ground and No Not One. I remember singing them all. The opening line of the most famous of Oatman's songs was, When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. But it was usually known by the words of the refrain, which if you remember the song at all, you remember still today. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Well, that's what the author of Joshua is doing here. The author is doing exactly that. He was counting the Lord's blessings one by one. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, one. The king of Tirzah, one. Joshua 12 is a specimen of counting the blessings of the Lord one by one. And in so doing, it is obviously recommending the same practice to us. There is so much of this in the Bible. The specific acknowledgement of what God has done for us and what he has given to us. The Psalms are full of it. 
When Professor Alan Ross was speaking here some months ago, he made a point of saying that. When you read in the Psalms a writer of one of those great poems saying that he will fulfill his vows to God in the sanctuary, a kind of statement that is repeated a number of times in the Psalms, he meant he had asked God for some blessing and he was promising that if God heard and answered his prayer, he would go to the temple and he would make public his thanksgiving for those blessings that God had given him. You find the same thing in the biblical narratives, in the Old Testament and the New. You have this one-by-one acknowledgement of the blessings of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Taking the Bible as a whole, we learn that the more godly a man is in the portrait of him that we are given in the Word of God, the more grateful that man invariably is, and the more given to expressing his thanksgiving to God and to others. Have you noticed that? It's true, and the Apostle Paul is a perfect example. He was always remembering every kindness that others had shown him, thanking the individuals themselves, and thanking God for them, and for what they had done for him. We find the Apostle Paul giving thanks throughout his letters. He was a thanksgiving machine. The British scholar H.L. Ellison in his short commentary on Joshua, it's often in short commentaries by British authors that you get the most useful insights. Ellison put the point this way. It would be unfair to suggest that the church is unwilling to thank God for all his many mercies. But on the whole, it is unwilling to indulge in detailed and specific thanks. If we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see how much God has already achieved. Ellison is telling us that it isn't enough to include a general thanksgiving for all God's mercies. It's much better to thank him for specific things. And if we can't recollect all of them, which we will never be able to do, so little of God's total goodness to us do we actually see and understand. Let some specific kindnesses and provisions stand for all the rest. It's the same with the confession of our sins, why we have the silent confession as well as the public one. It's not enough to be general. I did this, I did that, I failed to do this. And so with petitions, ask the Lord for very specific things. Every petition in the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to invite God to enter our lives to do this, to do that, to do this other thing. But supremely with thanksgiving, every day, day after day, You're consuming vast quantities of God's goodness. Are you thanking him for it? Promise after promise is being fulfilled in some way in your life every day you live in this world. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, food, clothing, shelter, 
will be added to you. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. He who honors me, I will honor. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you ask anything in my name, it shall be done for you. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And so many other exceeding great and precious promises like those. If you stop and thought about it with a Bible in your hand, you'd realize how many of those promises are fulfilled in your own daily life every single day. But we remain largely unaware because we do not stop to give thanks, because we have not trained ourselves to acknowledge the victories of the Lord in our lives. Imagine the Israelite soldier hearing this list, this list read out for the first time. Perhaps he was still recovering from wounds, suffered in one of those battles. Perhaps his father had been a soldier in the war. With what gratitude and pride and happiness he would listen as one city after another is listed as having fallen to the Israelite army. As he was reminded of how the Lord had kept his word, had given his people, the land that he had promised their ancestor Abraham. Like the World War II vet who says so proudly, I was there at D-Day. I was in the Battle of the Bulge. I was at Guadalcanal or Okinawa. So with us. We can so easily see and feel our troubles and our setbacks, the weariness of those many battles, But to hear the roll call of conquered cities should lift our spirits wonderfully. These victories in Canaan foreshadow the daily victories of the ordinary Christian life and the ultimate victory of all Christians in the Christian church when the kingdom of God has vanquished all of its opposition. The grateful man or woman, the Christian man or woman who is always careful to thank God for his gifts is the Christian man or woman who is most conscious of the Lord's presence in his or her life and the happiest man or woman. In a paragraph that is vintage Alexander White, the great preacher made this point in his own inimitable way. The size and the substance and the spirit of a man's soul is at once seen by the spontaneity and the generosity and the exuberance and the warmth of his praises. Just as the smallness and the stinginess and the sullenness of another man's soul is all disclosed to us by his despicable ingratitude to all his benefactors, Almighty God himself inhabits the praises of Israel. Do you want to step more lightly on the way to the promised land? Do you want to revel in the divine victories that are occurring in your life day after day? Do you want to feel yourself part of the victorious host of the Lord as you live your workaday life in this world? Well, stop with this infernal ingratitude. This unthinking indifference to what God does for you and gives to you every single day of your life. No, brothers and sisters... 
Let us be grateful. Let us aspire to be much more grateful than we are for the innumerable blessings that are lavished on us 24 hours a day and every day of the week. No generalities, no unthinking and unmeaning platitudes. Not for us. For us, let it be. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Amen.